Good morning and hello again today. Well, today will be just a little bit different, especially in the second hour. Oliver Callan will be here to give us a rundown on the runners and riders for an impending vacancy around here. We'll also be hearing from Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. Dublin footballer Mick Fitzsimons will join us. He only has seven All-Ireland medals and he's on the COVID front line as a doctor up, up above in the matter. Singers Sean Keane and Chloe Agnew will be here also. Mary-Louise O'Donnell, we will definitely hear from Donald Trump and we'll have an update on the ploughing and the outlook uh, for 2020. And I'd like to begin with a word of thanks to my good friend and former colleague Richard Crowley, who just texted in a few minutes ago to say, whatever you do, don't muck this one up, or words to that effect. Uh, Dr. Tony Hulan, good morning to you, good morning, Chief Sean. Medical Officer. Are we winning? Uh, we're doing well, and uh, we've seen a lot of improvement. Uh, we know uh, we've, with the work that society has done over the course of the last six, eight weeks in particular, in following the public health advice, we've managed to prevent uh, the kinds of scenes that we've seen affecting cities uh, and countries right across Western Europe uh, and North America. Uh, and we've managed to suppress the spread of this infection. We have seen a challenge. There has been mortality uh, and an impact in particular uh, among people in vulnerable groups and in nursing home settings. But overall, we've managed to suppress the number of cases. At the beginning of this, we were predicting that if we had uh, the kind of spread uh, that we, we saw at around the time when the schools were closing, if that had continued, we would have seen... Uh, uh, many thousands of cases a day occurring by now, in fact, by around the middle of April, uh, with the resultant impact in hospitalizations and the resultant impact in mortality. We have not seen that. We've never had more than a thousand cases occurring in a single day. Uh, and that's a testament to the work that people have done right across society. Does it also suppress. tell you, though, that, uh, again, we can all be wise after the event, that had this country moved as decisively, say, in mid-March, when the Taoiseach made that famous uh, statement on the 16th of March, had we done then what we did on the 28th, that we would have actually done even better. Uh, I think proportionality is always the appropriate thing. We think the measures that were recommended at that point that the Taoiseach announced on the 16th of March were the right measures based on what we saw at that point. We did see a change in the disease uh, and as, as, we, as we went through it, we continued to monitor. Uh, we wanted to ensure that uh, in terms of spread of the infection, that that we didn't introduce measures that of the kind of draconian kind that we now have in place that have had the impact in, in, in economic terms, in social terms, on people in, in their working and family lives, in the cocooning arrangements, for example, that are in place. These are really heavy and hard restrictions. We knew it was important not to introduce them earlier than they needed to be introduced because then they'd become less effective. People would tire of them sooner and they'd begin to be less effective when we actually need them. Do you them not most. think they've tired of them now? That there is evidence, of course, that people have tired, tired of them. But what we've seen, and we, we do market research uh, work uh, every twice a week, uh, we monitor the behaviours that the public is reporting. And we've seen a continued high level of compliance with the important behaviours around hand washing, respiratory et etiquette, people keeping their distance when they're queuing, for example. We have, we have seen a small amount of additional movement. And this evening we'll be in a position to report on some of uh, if you like, harder information mm -hmm. around vehi vehicular movement and other, measure, other measures that give us a sense of, 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 if you like, levels of compliance. So while we've seen some extra movement, we think the level of compliance in the population is, 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 is maintaining yeah, itself at a high level. People I mean, are listening to the advice. We had Charlie Bourne on a couple of days ago. Now, he is in that cocooner age group. He's, he's over 70. And he was making the point that, look, you know, only last week people were told they could go out for a brief walk, but they shouldn't stop to talk to anybody. I mean, that's bonkers isn't it? Uh, it's difficult for people uh, but it's about protecting them and their health. But from the other side and of the what, road, Tony? Uh, what, what we want to ensure is that people who, who, are, who are in those vulnerable groups, so these are the people who are experiencing the excess of, of impact in terms of 
severity and mortality, that we do everything we can to try and protect those individuals. That's why we've asked people to stay at home as much as possible. So that's what we're asking them to do, in fact. And that if they do want to get out, we understand that. Uh, but there are ways in which they can minimise the impact of, of this illness by uh, not engaging with other people, by not at this point in time ah, but here vi- now, visiting you know, retail and then when they get home to wash their hands. Not yeah, but if you, if you live in a little estate, as he does down in Ashford in County yeah. Wicklow, and the road is, what, six metres wide, can he not stop and talk across the road to his neighbour? We'll be giving advice on a continuing basis that, look, Sean, we want to try and make it as easy as possible. But where we're coming from is absolutely to recognise that for people in these in these groups, in other words, people over the age of 70 and people who've got underlying medical conditions, that they don't put themselves at risk. Yeah, but does mental health not form part of your responsibility as chief medical officer? It absolutely does. And so that's why we're concerned about, A, not introducing these measures sooner than they're necessary, and B, not leaving them in place for any longer than they're necessary. And the progress we're seeing now, particularly since last week, we're we're seeing a continued reduction in the number of infections. We're seeing a continued reduction in the number of admissions to hospital and intensive care. It's giving giving us hope. We're, uh, We're not going to make the assessment today but as we move through next week we will be making the assessment for the 18th of May and so we're hopeful that we'll be in a position at that point because of the continued commitment of public One of the, public of to follow the, the, advice. the saddest and most tragic and it was brought home to us again this morning when we heard the, the figures for that nursing home uh, Dargan nursing home in, in, in Dundalk uh, 23 people died there I think uh, since the beginning of April largely due to, to Covid now um, again that must make you think that Maybe you should have been quicker off the mark to ban visits from nursing homes. So this has been spoken about quite a bit. Uh, we know that visitors did not bring this into nursing homes. We followed the infection and we can see the point at which this infection occurred in the general population was about two weeks earlier than the point at which uh, it, it began to appear in nursing homes. Uh, the point at which we introduced the visitor restrictions and said now is the right time to stop visiting not just to nursing homes but to hospital and other healthcare settings where there are vulnerable people. Uh, that point was before we had any clusters of infection reported uh, and it was at least another two weeks or, or two or, or three weeks before we began to see an increase in infection. Yeah, but I mean, so, it, it, so this is, is a silent this is a silent virus, isn't it? I mean, but you don't necessarily see the symptoms, um, you know, when it's there. But more than an incubation period elapsed before we began to see infection in the nursing homes. So that's, we know epidemiologically that that's proof that visitors didn't bring it into the nursing homes. And that's an important point to make because while that's been commented on in public, there will be people who visited during those time periods who may feel themselves responsible for having brought this infection in. And that isn't true. Do you you still stand over what's reported in the minutes from your meeting on the 10th of March, your 12th meeting of your emergency committee? The restriction on visitors to nursing homes was discussed. It was agreed that the current practice of restricting visitors to nursing homes was not required and this would be kept under under review. Uh, NEFED recommends that unilateral widespread restriction of visiting to nursing homes, hospitals and healthcare facilities is not required at this time. That was March the 10th, just six days before the Taoiseach spoke in Washington. Do you stand over that? We do, because that was the appropriate assessment at that point in time. If I can take you back to that week, not just in terms of nursing homes, we had a number of, as it were, unilateral actions taking place across society. There were school closures happening, there were sporting organisations making decisions, there were other organisations making decisions and there were certain decisions being made in relation to to nursing homes, all of which were not, let's say, decisions that emanated from the public health advice that we were giving. We wanted to have the country move in step with the advice and to have everybody follow the advice as we issued it. We didn't want to see a measure like restricting visiting to nursing homes, which is cutting people off from their loved ones, being introduced. Yeah, but look at the consequences. I mean, over half the deaths have happened in nursing homes. And and I'm saying to you that the visitors didn't bring this in. We know that epidemiologically. Well, well, who did bring it in then? Well, 
it gets in through people getting into the nursing homes and, and I'm not going to kind of identify people in, in a sense of blame, but we know that no, this in, 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 the, in the population, we know that the population experienced the infection, the staff who work in the nursing homes experienced the infection earlier. Yeah, and did nobody and so think th- about the agency th- staff working in nursing homes and the fact that they had the potential to, ca- to carry the virus from one institution to another? And, and they do, and that's precisely why when we looked at this issue, we put in place interventions to deal with exactly that, to put in place arrangements whereby we could enable staff who, who did move between nursing homes, where there is a risk of carrying transmission, transmission from one nursing home to another, to stay in other settings, to not mix with each other outside of the workplace, to pass that infection on from one to the other. And those measures have worked. We have slowed the infection uh, and the track of it in the nursing home sector. We've seen a continued fall now in the number of cases in that sector and in the number of nursing homes been affected. You have to recall, Sean, this is a highly transmissible virus. It's more transmissible than flu. It simply isn't realistic, and I know you're not suggesting that we could prevent this infection from getting into nursing Yeah, but maybe entire. if we had moved, when, again, people are asking on the text line, I understand. why didn't we move as fast as New Zealand did? Uh, New Zealand, is, it's not, the comparisons are, that are being drawn between, they're not valid comparisons. Uh, the, the virus spread around the world. Europe was an epicentre for this. Uh, the Southern Hemisphere was not an epicentre. Ireland is a country uh, which has uh, both social, economic, legal, political uh, links with all of Western Europe, which was an epicentre mm. of this infection. That's not the experience that New Zealand had. And its experience in the infection came much later than other, than other countries. So direct comparisons uh, are not valid between... Between here Are there any countries with which we can do direct comparisons? We can look at our, our, the countries in Western Europe. And if you look at the path of infection in this country, we think we've done as well, if not better, than the most countries in Western Europe. And I'm, I'm talking about the countries to the west of Europe. Uh, and also, when you look at the nursing home sector, which you're asking me about, that has been a challenge, if not to the same extent, to a much larger extent in the countries that we look at across Western Europe, the countries that the ECDC uh, will look at. Just... Uh, Sorry. We, yeah, we think we have done as well, if not better. Many of those countries have not been able to suppress the infection in the way that we've had across society. And the only way that we have of certainty uh, in preventing spread of infection to people in vulnerable groups, whether they're in nursing homes or whether they're in the, and there are many, many more of them in the community at large, is to first suppress the infection in the population at large. That's what we did. Uh, uh, and, and, and people will have picked up that infection, people who work in nursing homes. And that's the mechanism through which it gets into nursing homes but it didn't get in through visitors. It's yeah. important for people who will feel themselves as, as it being in some way implicitly to blame for having visited a loved one at the wrong time. So, it so did it come fault. in through staff? And this isn't about blame. It isn't, yeah. So did it come in through staff? So, so clearly people who, who are, because the virus, doesn't, the virus doesn't travel around on its own. It's people who carry the virus from one to another. So the virus isn't out there in society in mm-hmm. some way or out there in the, in the environment, I should say. Uh, it's in people. And when people move around and interact with each other, that's how the virus is spread from one to the other. And so, yes, there's a risk that if people who are staff going in and out of nursing homes pick up the infection, it can get transmitted. Just that going way. back to that minute uh, where you, you said there was no action required on the 10th of March in regard to restricting visitors to nursing homes. Were there any dissenting voices at that meeting? Uh, no, uh, I think our view is not that the measure isn't required. The, the the decision that we were making at that point in time is but it's not required at this point in time. It was a matter of days later, I think two days later, when actually we followed the track of the infection and we saw some changes in that that led us to say, OK, now is the time. And we issued that advice. Mm-hmm. So the time isn't, uh, you know, it's what, we, what we've had and what's worked really well in this country is we've issued the public health advice 
in a way to have the whole of the country follow that advice, irrespective of their sector. But that week, that we, what we were dealing with, as I've said to you, was a challenge in where different parts of society and the community were making their own determinations about when they should close or what they should do. And that led to concern in the public that there was, there was not a clear and coherent position. So we were... Uh, we wanted to absolutely be sure that there was clear public health advice and that the public would follow that. We introduced that measure only two days later. Um, as we know, there's a clear expectation the Cabinet will decide this morning or this, a- this afternoon, whenever today, uh, not to go ahead with the Leaving Cert. Now, you've been careful all along. You've been asked about it several times this, w- this week to say that's a decision for government, but presumably it's based on advice you gave them. So we gave advice, obviously, and we've worked with the Department of Education uh, in relation to the public health advice, and no more than any other sector. What that department will do and has done is make an assessment based on that public health advice as to what that will mean for the operational uh, um, conduct, in this case, of the Leaving Cert exam. Uh, and I know that the Minister for Education is bringing a memorandum for Cabinet this morning, which is meeting this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but, and, and but when you saw yesterday's figures, 137 new cases, now that's, I think, less than 1% of, a, of an increase. Um, was yeah, it's, there not encouraging. Part, it's encouraging, yeah. Was there not part of you which said, look, you know, maybe we could, you know, go ahead with the Leaving Cert? So, we, so our advice is around... Uh, uh, a whole range of different measures. So, like, the timeframes uh, that we've identified uh, for the measures, in other words, every three weeks, the, to make assessments in relation to those, every three weeks, we'll, we'll do that, and we'll do that on a continuing basis. But the specific question about the Leaving Cert and the conduct of it on the 29th of July is a decision for the Minister for Education uh, uh, for him to bring to Cabinet in a memorandum which is happening this mm-hmm. morning. Cabinet will make the determination on that and he will take into account the public health advice but obviously all the operational assessments that have to be done by the department, the officials and at a political level is, is Does for the Does look no hands about this now coming from you if I may put it like that in the sense that you know they're making these decisions and I suppose statutorily that is the way it should be but you've been described as the most powerful man in the country um, perhaps even the most powerful civil servant or public servant we've ever had in the country. You have huge influence, haven't you? Uh, I, look, we have, a, we have a clear job to do in the context of a pandemic, which is to make an assessment of the public health position and give public health advice. And we give that public health advice. Uh, no matter what has been said, it is neither for us ever before or ever will be to make determinations on for example, how to conduct the leaving cert, and this the question mm-hmm. asked me about, or how to run restaurants, or whatever whatever the question of the day might be. We give the public health advice. What we want then to ensure is that each of those sectors, each of those organisations, as it were, internalise that, put in place appropriate preparedness arrangements, and put in place their own plans to safely and appropriately deliver their but services if, wherever they may be. If things are going as well as they now appear to be, and uh, allowing for all the caution about, look, don't take this for granted and don't ease up, we need to do social distancing and all the is it necessary to wait three weeks between the different phases of getting the country back to some level of normality? Uh, we think it is. Um, the, the, there's been guidance from both the WHO and the ECDC and there are different periods of time recommended by them. So the ECDC says three to four weeks, the WHO would say two weeks. Uh, we think a three-week period of time is appropriate. That's why we identify that in the advice we provided to government and which was accepted. Uh, and that would allow us enough time to see if if something we hadn't predicted in terms of behaviour that leads to a change in the spread of the infection is to occur, we need to be able to pick that up before we say we're ready and safe to move on to the next stage. And that's the reason for that interval. I, I don't know if you've got a, a student or students of leaving cert age, but as a parent, would you be relieved this morning at the news? Uh, well, I have one who did it last year and another one who's in t- t- to do it next year. So that's where my two are at. 
Uh, I understand the challenge that this has been for students. I think everybody is sensitive to, the, to that. Uh, and I, I understand there'll be a decision at some point later today and an, an announcement um, uh, and uh, it'll bring certainty to students. And I think that'll be welcome from their point of view. Yeah, a lot of listeners' questions. We can just take one or two of them. A listener wants to ask what the chances are of us having zero new cases here in the next few months. And also, uh, does Dr. Hulhan think we'll have a vaccine next year? Uh, so we'll want to see the, the virus being suppressed as low as possible. If, whether we can get to zero or not, I'm not going to predict that that'll be the case, but we'll go as low as we possibly can. Mm. Uh, and what we want to be able to do then as we as we as we ease some of the restrictions in society, and we hope we'll be in a position to recommend that next week for the 18th of May, uh, that we want to keep the virus as low as possible uh, and the transmission. And we'll be monitoring that very closely. And, sorry. The vaccine question, did you... Yes. Uh, and on the vaccine question, a lot of work is happening internationally uh, on that and we're, we're hopeful that that will deliver a vaccine. But I have to say it's not a certainty. It never is in terms of scientific... That, yeah, that, that we, we were talking... That we, that we with certainty predict that there will be a vaccine. Is we, it likely that there will be a cure before there's a vaccine? Look, there's efforts going on both in terms of vaccine development and developments of drugs. There are some drugs at the moment that are showing some promise. Uh, they're, they're not game changers, if I can put it that way, in the way in which we've seen some drugs develop, developed for viral infections like hepatitis C that have helped get rid of hepatitis C from, from the bodies of people who, who, who have been infected with that. Um, uh, but there's a huge amount of scientific work, you can imagine, going on right around the world to try to find uh, both drugs that are effective in the direct management of the viral infection or in other... You know, or the impacts of, mm-hmm. that, of, of that infection on people's immune systems and respiratory systems and so on, uh, and then also on vaccines. And so we're very hopeful. Uh, but, but I can't say with certainty that we will have. Um, nobody's in a position to say that yet. Yeah. Um, please uh, ask Dr. Hulahan how worried we should be for the autumn, living with flu and the coronavirus together. Uh, so that's one of the things that we're thinking about and the Minister has been clear about this in public we want to be in a position to greatly increase the number of people who receive flu vaccine for next winter to try and minimise the impact of that uh, infection flu each year uh, um, uh, we have different challenges in terms of the spread of that infection it, it affects people in, in many of the same kinds of uh, vulnerable groups that we're talking about with this virus maybe not the same level of, of severity as we've unfortunately seen with this particular virus but the spread that we see happens in healthcare settings in nursing homes and in schools and in school settings. So one of the things we'd really like to do would be to start to bring children into the group of people who receive on a routine basis flu vaccine, as well as greatly increasing our uptake among vulnerable people and healthcare workers. The single biggest issue uh, listeners are asking about is airports. Um, what's your sense of when it will be safe to travel, when we'll see regular travel resuming or will we? And so travel is a challenge uh, because that involves obviously getting on planes. It's a challenge to maintain social distance and so on in that kind of environment. Uh, and we need to see progress, not just within Ireland, but across a number of countries for travel to happen uh, and to get us into a situation where we can uh, aspire to get back to the kinds of uh, movement of people between countries. Our recommendations right now are that people avoid all non-essential travel, both off the island and back onto the island, mm-hmm. uh, to try and minimise that. And, and there's, 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 there's really only very tiny amounts of travel now into the country but it's one of the specific issues when I leave here I'm chairing a meeting of the National Public Health Emergency Team at 11 o'clock and it's a, it's one of the specific questions we're giving consideration to now is further measures in, in respect of ports. Like for instance compulsory um, completion of forms about where people are going and what about the idea of doing like the Australians are doing 
compulsory quarantining. So those are uh, th- th- those are the things that we will, be, we will be discussing this morning. And what we'll do is we'll we'll provide some advice to government, uh, as we do in the in, in in every situation. We come up with the advice, we provide that advice to government, and government makes the necessary decisions based on our considerations as well as other considerations that government needs to have coming um, from other sectors. You have become perhaps the most familiar face in the country over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, nobody would have recognised you apart from your friends and your family going down the street. Uh, at the start of this year. I mean, how has this whole thing affected you? I mean, does it get between you and your sleep? Do you have a, a sense of ser- the serious weight of responsibility on your shoulders? Well, look, I have a good team of people. Uh, so it's not just me. There's a large number of people, both in the Department of Health and the HSE and HICWA and a range of other agencies and experts who work with us on this. Uh, and so it's not just me. So I'm be representing work that a lot of people are doing. So it's not just my work. It's important to say that. And... Uh, uh, um, it gets between me and my sleep sometimes. Uh, it's a challenge. It is busy because we have to maintain an operation seven days a week. But I try, as I recommend to most people, I, I get a walk in my local park in Bushy Park in Turnure uh, every morning. And that's my way of, I stay in touch with the people in my GA club, uh, even though we're not doing the, uh, the usual uh, matches. Uh, you've been described to me as a nice guy, very, very tough, difficult and wily. Does that summarise you? <laughs> Uh, it's not. That's not for me to judge. Okay, uh, but look, it, yeah. the the, um, the other thing is now you've said, and Simon Coveney sitting exactly where you are uh, now a few days ago, saying, "Look, there's no tension between yourself and the government, despite stuff that's been written." But I mean, there should be tension between yourself and the government, surely, if 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 both sides are doing their job. Uh, the government has a range of considerations uh, to take on board in making any decision. So I've, I've given public health advice all the way through this on behalf of the work that we've done across the health sector uh, and government has followed that advice. Uh, as we move into the, the phase that we're in now, other considerations start to become important. I don't have expertise or insight into uh, the economic system uh, and, and, and how the economy functions and, how, and so the government doesn't ask me about those things, uh, which is a good thing because I don't know about those things. It asks the parts of the uh, government government that do know about Have those things they ever and it takes its considerations into account based on that. You cannot be serious. Uh, no, I haven't heard those words, no. Or to and, that effect. And, and I've, heard, I've seen all the characterisation, Sean, of, of how some of this is represented. I can, I can tell you honestly, uh, although it's a lot less interesting, perhaps, uh, that the engagements that I've had at a political level, at a government level, uh, have been entirely consistent with what I've said already. That we, um, we've engaged respectfully. The advice that we've given has been listened to, has been followed, and I've seen no challenge. That's been an issue for colleagues of mine, if you like, in other countries, where it's clear to me that some of the public health advice that has been given and has been provided hasn't formed the basis of actions and decisions that have been taken by governments in other countries and that has caused difficulties for, for other countries. If things We're lucky that that has not been the situation here. If things continue to go as well as they've gone and allowing for the fact that there's been terrible tragedy and sadness along the way but things could be far worse than they are. If they continue to go as well if the trends keep going the way they are might we see a, 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 if you like a, a, reduce, a reduction I should say sorry in the amount of time it takes to get to where we're going to be in, you know, phase phase four or phase five. So what we said at last weekend was the um, the decision making framework based on our best assessment. But we continue to examine things on an ongoing basis. And one of the things we've said from the beginning is that if we think the circumstances arise that where we change our position on something, we'll we'll, we'll advise on that. But we think we need the kind of time that we've set out to make the kind of stage changes. Uh, to allow us to um, uh, safely resume uh, the work of the economy, uh, the work of society uh, and our everyday lives in as much as we can. Last question. Sure. It's important to some people. Um, 
pubs can say, say pubs um, say they can socially distance. Uh, would you be okay with the with them opening in June? So the pubs came to us in March and said, we understand your public health advice and we don't think we can implement it in the public in, 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 in pubs. And that was the reason that they, they, were, they were asked to close at, at, on that occasion. Uh, I know there are many parts of society and, and the economy making a case that they should be in earlier phases. What we think now needs to happen is that is the economy and society in general get on with the job of preparing to, uh, as it were, implement uh, our advice in the settings that they operate in. So if I can choose, say, restaurants or the hospitality sector as an example, how are they going to put in place the arrangements uh, to protect their staff, to protect their clients and their customers when the time is right for them to begin to resume those activities? And we won't want to keep those activities um, uh, to stop. But would you be okay with June? Might you be okay? Might it come that June might be the possibility? I don't see see, uh, any realistic prospect of pubs in June. No, straight answer to your question. Okay, well, we leave the last word to John in Cork. Tony Hoolan, Tony Hoolan has provided calm reassurance at a time of crisis. Thank you. And thank you indeed. No, and thanks for the invitation to be on, Sean. And okay. best of luck to you. And I know all about what you meant when you talked about the team and the importance of it. We'll take a break.